HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick at 261 Morgan Moore Street, <laughs> the Morgan Avenue stop. Um, I want to take a moment to thank my guest, uh, Doug Powell, who is joining us all the way from Australia. It's three o'clock in the morning for him, and I think it shows incredible dedication to his field and to my audience that he was willing to get up in the middle of the night and answer questions about sprouts. So let me, without further ado, introduce Doug Powell, a food scientist and the creator, and this is how I got to know about Doug. He is the creator of an online repository of food safety-related information called The Barf Blog. That's right, folks, thebarfblog.com. It's a forum for information about current food safety issues where he has written more than 5,000 entries since starting the blog in 2006. He is also a professor of diagnostic medicine and pathobiology at the College of Veterinary Medicine at Kansas State University, and he has published more than 60 peer-reviewed papers and book chapters, has served on national and international food safety advisory boards, and he is the proud father of five children. So, <clears throat> without further ado, Doug, I am fascinated by the consumer head-in-the-sand approach to products such as raw milk, which they persist in wanting to drink, and sprouts, which people persist in wanting to eat. And unlike many, I don't see these two foods as nature's gift, but rather a bubbling Petri dish waiting to kill me and you. So, lo and behold, when we were talking about you know what to talk about here, it turns out that you had just written and published a paper on sprouts. Tell us about it. Well, good morning or <laughs> afternoon, whatever it might be. Uh, yeah. Um, and ho- hopefully our internet connection will work, and hopefully my three-year-old will come downstairs screaming. Well, even um, if she, he or she does, <laughs> we will welcome them with open arms. Yes, Never okay. Right. Well, it, it, that's a good way to look at it. It's another audience member. Absolutely. Can't Perhaps get them young enough in my game, uh, man. <laughs> 
perhaps it could open up advertising for baby products. Or oh, yeah, there something. you go. I don't know. <laughs> I like the way you think, Doug. I knew we were going to get along just famously. <laughs> just from reading the Barf blog, which I have to say, for something so serious, you managed to make a lot of jokes in the Barf blog. And also, I got to ask you, how do you have time to write as much as you do? Because, I mean, really, you publish a lot of information there. We survey the food, the food safety world sort of hourly, daily. Wow. I just have a couple of students that help me out with it. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> there's no shortage of material. It's actually pretty easy. There's outbreaks going on, not just in the U.S., but everywhere all the time. Some of it I don't write. It's more like cut and paste or I'll insert some commentary. And then other ones I do write. So I guess it's not as awesome as it seems. Oh, but no, it's, it's still pretty it's awesome. It's a good repository. Oh, God, it's it's unbelievable. And the fact that you do an international survey as opposed to like Bill Marler and, um, you know, his food safety journal, which I really like and admire, but it's very, you know, it's completely uh, U.S. centric. And the fact that you're bringing in information from around the world is, uh, you know, really interesting to see how um, different countries, what kinds of problems they're addressing and what their trace back and how they solve them and all of that stuff, which hopefully we'll get to before the end of this half hour. So, well, our food supply, our food supply is international, so mm-hmm. we need to know about the risks internationally. Indeed, That's what we I'd do. Argue. I mean, we're going to be talking I'm about in that. Australia. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll leave it then. I okay. want to go back to sprouts. I want to go back to sprouts just uh, quickly, and then we'll go back to that sort of like, what do we do with how how do we monitor international food safety? So, in the okay. paper, you point out that in uh, the last what you know, twenty years since nineteen eighty eight. There have been at least 55 foodborne illness outbreaks associated with eating sprouts of any type, I suppose, and over 15,000 reported illnesses. I guess in the grand scheme of things, maybe that isn't so much, but to me, it's enough to make me not want to eat them. And you would think that this kind of, you know, um, liability issue would be enough to tank this industry. So how come it's continuing to flourish, if not sprout? Depends where you are. Um, certainly food service, like on a lot of airlines, has stopped serving sprouts because of these risks, mm-hmm. uh, but others don't. And it really it comes back to a key point, I think, and that is I don't care whether you're small, organic, local, natural, whether your food comes from around the corner or around the globe. You need to be clued in to the microbiological risks that are in that product. Sprouts just seem to have, sprouts are a perfect growing environment for bacteria like E. coli 0157 or salmonella Mm -hmm. because the conditions that you sprout the seed under, high temperature, high moisture, are also ideal conditions for anything to grow. So you need very, very small levels of contamination. And they've shown that that contamination can be actually inside the seed. So you're not going to get at it. And you put it in a sprouting environment and it grows. Right. So... There's risks with every food that's out there. There's no doubt about that. But there are certain foods that keep popping up over and over and over. And sprouts is one of them. Well, that was what made me want to use address that topic, this topic with you, was that I had seen so many mentions of um, foodborne illness outbreaks uh, associated with sprouts. And, of course, last summer, it really got my attention with that gigantic... Um, outbreak in Germany where what it was like uh, over 4,000 people got sick like very sick and uh, and something like 47 people died 
And it was eventually after they had fingered the Spanish for fun- for funky cucumbers and, you know, everybody else in the book for everything else. It, it finally turned out to be these uh, seeds, fenugreek seed sprouts, I believe it was from Egypt, right? That's correct. Now, and there's and it was 53 people that died and uh, something like 800 people ended up developing what's called hemolytic uremic syndrome, which attacks your kidneys and they'll have lifelong problems. I mean, a lot of foodborne illness is not, I'm going to sit on the toilet for a day or sit on the couch for a day and ride it out. Most of us can do that. But in a lot of cases, the complications are lifelong. Mm-hmm. And they're not just limited to kidney damage. I mean, I think I've, heard, I've read about people lose, having uh, sort of uh, rheumatoid arthritis-like conditions following a foodborne illness and, and various other complications, um, which I'm sure you can tell us. So tell us. <laughs> Okay, I will. The, <laughs> what you're talking about is something called reactive arthritis. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they found out about this in sometime in the early 80s or mid-80s. I forget the exact details. See, I write 5,000 posts, and I just can't remember them all. Amazing. Um, I don't know how you can even confess whoever, to that. <laughs> whoever the Pope was at the time visited a place called the Midland or something like that. It's in, it's in Ontario, north uh-huh. of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Pope visits. So they had a large security detail. And they all got fed the same roast beef sandwiches. Mm-hmm. So here you have a population of middle-aged, fit males and females who are the security detail. And like 700 of them got sick from these sandwiches. Gee whiz. And someone, some scientist was smart enough to say, hmm, Let's follow these people, sort of like one of them movies, you know, you go back and revisit every five years yeah, and see what happened. And what they concluded is that about 5% of the people who were sickened with salmonella went on to develop reactive arthritis that was directly linked to the salmonella. Amazing. So, yeah, it shows up. Yeah. I mean, in other words, foodborne illness, as you said, is not just a squat over the toilet for a day. It's like it can be a, a long term <laughs> and, and really a drag for the rest of your life. So why do consumers, let me ask you this. Let's go back to the sprout thing for just a second. Why do people think that sprouts are so great anyway? I mean, it's like I feel like I'm 56 years old and I feel like sprouts, you know, became really hip and groovy to eat somewhere in the late 70s, early 80s. And what is it about sprouts that was, you know, that encouraged people to eat them and think they were so good for them? Well, there are nutritional benefits to sprouts. There's no doubt about it. But with any food, there are risks and benefits. Um, I'm glad to hear that you're aware of the risks as you enter into your later years. I'm turning 50 myself. I like to call them my middle years. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but your immune system in humans, it starts to go down about 55. Mm. Even if you're fit and everything else, that's when the decline starts. Oh, my God. By the time you're about 85, <laughs> there isn't much left. Yeah. <clears throat> that's why we see that a lot of these outbreaks disproportionately sicken and kill Elderly people. Sure. That, that's what happened in that Mysterio break last year with cantaloupe. They that's killed right. 35-something. Uh, almost all of them were elderly. Uh-huh. So I'm glad that you're aware of the risk. And it becomes much more important as we age. Mm-hmm. Because even though we might like to think we're still 28, we're not. 
And yes, I do. Thank you very much. Well, 35. I'm, I'm settled on about 35 right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to draw the line somewhere, dude. I mean, you can't just like let this stuff roll over you. You know, age is just a number and it's just a concept. So, well, um, it may be, it may be, but that means you have to be careful about the food you eat. Yeah. Now with sprouts, with sprouts, I don't know, people eat and do a lot of things. And most of my research is related to human behavior. Look, I probably drink too much alcohol. Some people probably smoke too much. Some people drive dumb. There are lots of risks out there that we engage in day in, day out. My job's not to say, oh, you shouldn't eat that or, you know, don't do that, because that's preaching. Right. My job is to say, here are the risks. You're grown up. You decide. Now, where the Oh, man. Did we just drop my call? I'm sorry, folks. What a drag. Because here we are having such a great conversation with uh, Dr. Doug Powell. I think he's a doctor. He's uh, probably has a PhD in microbiology, and he is a professor of um, diagnostic medicine and pathobiology. Are we getting him back, Jack? Yeah, he's going to give me one second. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world, highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you can eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com.
Okay, are we back? We're back. Hey, Doug, you there? We're back. Oh, great. So yep. sorry about that. And uh, let me reintroduce you. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. And my guest today is Doug Powell, a food scientist and the uh, creator of the barfblog.com, which listeners should know you too can um, subscribe to. And I strongly suggest that you do so. Um, so, Doug, we were, um, we were just talking about human behaviors, which aren't usually so smart, myself uh, particularly in spite of my advanced age. Um, but uh, let's, <laughs> one of the things that was in your paper about sprouts, uh, talking about sprouts, trying to keep it on the, um, on, you know, on point here, um, is that your paper talks about how cooking sprouts can reduce the possibility of foodborne illnesses, but aren't sprouts supposed to be eaten raw? Well, it depends. I mean, if you're in Southeast Asia, um, they have a tradition of they cook all their vegetables, mm-hmm. and a lot of that stems from um, contaminated water systems, and they know. So <clears throat> they will do a light blanch or put the sprouts in a stir-fry. Right. And the, <clears throat> those are good alternatives, but the problem is it doesn't deal with cross-contamination, and by that I mean these dangerous microorganisms moving from the food to your kitchen surface, whether uh-huh. it's in a restaurant or in your own home kitchen, because you put it on your hands, right? You've got to sure. spread stuff to put them into the pot. And it turns out that cross-contamination is much bigger as a factor in foodborne illness than any of us ever thought. They do these neat studies where they follow the bugs around, uh-huh. and uh, it, it's, a lot, it's a lot harder. So that's why in the system we say it's farm to fork, starts on the farm, and everyone has a responsibility throughout that system, whatever product you're dealing with, to lower those numbers, because you do not want high numbers going into the kitchen, because then you'll have problems. Right, right. Now, one of the things I noticed in the paper, which I read actually twice, thank you very much, um, is you talk about irrigation water and... um, of course, now I'm blanking on it, but there's sort of some sort of sense. I got the sense that there's irrigation water and then there's irrigation water. Like there's spent, what did you describe it as spent yeah. irrigation water? What uh, does that mean? It's irrigation. It's any water used in the production. Uh-huh. Okay. So any water. It this way. In produce, <clears throat> any fresh produce that isn't cooked, besides the cross-contamination, and actually, do you know there was an outbreak of E. coli in in the U.K. in which something like 257 people got sick and one died? And they didn't go public about it for a long time. And it turns out that the best guess is that it was from uh, carrots and potatoes grown in the soil wow. that weren't washed properly. Wow. So you, what I like to say is be the bug. Think about it. Think about where microorganisms go and how they cross move around. And when you do that with produce, the main factors that keep coming up are water, especially irrigation water, uh-huh. or if the product, like, say, a watermelon, some watermelons are washed after they're picked, mm-hmm. and that's in a dump tank, so are some tomatoes, those can be problems. So is lettuce. Um, soil amendments, what are we adding to the soil? Uh-huh. Are you aware it's microbiologically safe? And then, because it's fresh produce, which means anything that comes into contact with it can contaminate, have to be very careful about employee hand washing and sanitation. Yeah, which I'm guessing a lot of people are a little slack about, especially on the smaller scale. I mean, I think if you're in a well, large it depends. It, industrial... It, you know, it's, like I said before, you either know about these microorganisms or you don't. I've seen lots of small farms that are very aware. I've seen lots of big farms that are very unaware. So it's not necessarily size dependent. It's microbiological dependent. 
Okay, nice to know that. Very nice to know that. Because I know that one thing that happens a lot is that um, smaller farms are often blamed for disease. Um, like they don't have the money to invest in, you know, putting th- into the uh, putting uh, interventions into effect that are going to reduce uh, the possibility of pathogen um you know, growth or, or movement or transfer or whatever. And um, it's nice to know that it's, it's equally, uh, you know, large plants can be equally culpable. So um, I'm going to move on for a second because we were talking a little bit of, uh, a few minutes ago about the, that huge outbreak in Germany last year, which is what caught my attention about sprouts. And so I wanted to talk about the international aspect of our food system, which, of course, you began to address and I immediately cut you off. But let's talk about it now. So are there... <laughs> Are there any international guidelines or standards uh, for sprout production specifically? I mean, I know there are some others we could discuss, but let's talk about sprouts for now. Okay, so in the German outbreak that killed 53 and sickened something like Mm 4,400, they traced it back to these seeds from Egypt. Mm -hmm. Now, those seeds were shipped to Germany. They were also shipped to France, and there was a smaller outbreak. That's right. As part of this outbreak, the same strain... And the seeds had come from the same place, but this was in Bordeaux, France. Mm-hmm. 20 people got sick. So, and really, do you know where these seeds come from? People say, well, I sprout my seeds at home, so I'm safe. No, you're not. You don't know where those seeds came from. Right. So how do you figure that out as a consumer? Say you are somebody who um, wants to sprout your own seeds. How do you figure out where your seeds come from? Well, there are a couple of suppliers that have a very dedicated supply chain. It's more expensive, but... If you're concerned about this sort of thing, rather than rolling the dice, that might be a good option. Right. And how would but people find any, out about any that? Any claims are only as good as um, the validation behind them. There's lots of guidelines for moving foodstuffs around. There's lots of marketing that goes on. But really, most food decisions are faith-based. <laughs> Hear that, folks? For the consumer. When you go to a grocery store... You don't know if someone sneezed on that pallet of tomatoes before they went and looked beautiful on the shelf. Yeah. You don't know if your grower is microbiologically savvy or not. I mean, I ask them, but Uh most people don't know. Oh, certainly not. Absolutely. You don't know what's been done at the other end. When you order a sandwich, you don't know. I mean, going back to sprouts, my favorite is, it's not funny, it's really serious, but Jimmy John's, this sandwich chain that's really popular and all these college towns, like where I'm from, Manhattan, Kansas, uh-huh. they've had five outbreaks involving sprouts. Yeah, just in the last year and a half or two years, right? And it goes back three or four, but they've had three in the last two. Yeah. And, you know, the amazing thing was they had a big outbreak on alfalfa sprouts, and people talk about it like it's a, some people were quoted at the time saying it's a magical food, you know, it's a magical ingredient. I don't think it's magical to get salmonella or E. coli. That's sort of actually pretty real. <laughs> I'd say and, that was the opposite of magical, actually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's magical the way the stuff comes out of you. <laughs> <laughs> it's magical how sick you're going to get from eating that stuff. <laughs> yeah. But it's a stealth ingredient. And what we mean by that is it's added to sandwiches and salads all the time, and you don't even know about it. Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's why I wanted to bring this up, because even though that German outbreak got a lot of press coverage in the United States, um, I still see sprouts 
everywhere. Now, when I read your paper, I saw that Walmart, for example, has discontinued selling any sprouts whatsoever, so they don't incur any liability on that. But I don't see any other grocery chain following suit. Why is that? Uh, A couple of food service chains have. Mm -hmm. And certainly, I know the big food service related to airlines, they stopped a long time ago. Right. So if the if the place has some commitment to food safety, someone in place who's up to date and knows these things and can assess the risks, they make decisions. And yeah, if I ran a grocery store, I would not want sprouts in it. Mm-hmm. But then, it, then people would complain to me and say, why aren't you offering me choice? Well, then I would effectively communicate to them, which was another part of your paper that I thought was very interesting, is how little consumers seem to be taking this seriously and how um, ineffective, even though the FDA and the USDA, I think you said, had both tried to create some sense of consumer awareness about these dangers, and yet those communication efforts had failed. So what do you think it's going to take for consumers to really understand that, you know, certain foods come with a higher than average risk? And, you know, what what more can be done to reduce that? First of all, there's the marketplace. I mean, if you look at animal welfare, how changes get made, they don't go targeting government or consumers. They go to McDonald's and Burger King. Yeah. Well, McDonald's and Burger King were the first, after the the jack-in-the-box thing, they were the first to really, because that's when Temple Grandin got caught, you know, that's when she got her big break was Mm -hmm. McDonald's called her and said, we need you to help us design a system where the animals are not going to be so, uh, you know, prone to spreading disease. You know, if Walmart, McDonald's, Costco say, we're not going to sell this stuff, Mm-hmm. That makes change. Yeah. That's one. The other one, though, to give consumers voice, because a lot of us don't want to eat there every day for health reasons or for whatever other reasons. We, what I argue is we need to be able to market microbial food safety at retail. And what I mean by that is I can get local, natural, organic, sustainable spinach, dolphin-free spinach, whatever, but I can't buy spinach that's microbiologically or at least has some assurance on it, some sort of label, anything that says this was grown by someone who knows what they're doing. You know, we can't get rid of all the bugs. We can't kill all the birds. Right. Can't kill all the animals. But if you look at these outbreaks and they're not acts of God, they almost always are the culmination of a number of small errors. Mm -hmm. And then when you go back and look at them, you say, oh, why didn't people get sick earlier? Why didn't we pick up on it? Well, it's because most of us ride it out and it never gets reported into the system. Yes, I think there's very much that problem, absolutely. And I think that that seems to be changing somewhat. I think that, I mean, certainly uh, the CDC seems to have better systems in place for tracing back, which is a, obviously a very complex process given the international food supply. They have much better systems than they used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, public health is on the front lines of the current financial crisis, and uh, people just don't have the resources. But I think you made an interesting point when you talked about awareness, mm-hmm. that you know people are more aware. You're in New York, right? Yes, I am. So when you go to a restaurant, do you see the little letter grade on the front window? Indeed we do. Do you pay attention to it? Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. Now, <laughs> so do you think that those letter grades results in fewer people getting sick? I would not say that that was a given, no. That's good. 
very scientific of you. <laughs> Thanks. I knew that was a trick question, though. <laughs> Although there have been papers that purport that, it's very difficult to prove. What I argue is, and I, was, um, I have intimate knowledge of the Toronto system, which came in in 2002, mm-hmm. and it uses red, yellow, green. Mm-hmm. What that does is makes people talk more about food safety. Mm-hmm. It raises their awareness. And for the owners, they don't want the embarrassment. Social embarrassment is a huge motivator. Yeah. You know, companies make people sick. They got insurance to cover it. What they really don't like is if they're socially embarrassed. Well, sure, because, I mean, the more people talk about, oh, I got sick from eating meat from Cargill or, or buying spinach from, yeah. you know, whatever, Best Buy, Andy's Best or whatever it is, you know. Yeah, but I, that makes me ask, well, we have to wrap it up in just a couple of seconds, but I want to ask you one final question, um, just from my own personal curiosity. You know, when people say you should wash your vegetables thoroughly, okay, say you buy a bag of spinach, and it has soil on it still, and you wash it in cold water. What the hell does that do to prevent foodborne illness? I mean, I don't see how washing something in cold water is going to um, kill any pathogens, which would, I would imagine, cling, still cling to the leaves, even if the soil seems to be washed away. That's exactly right. People think that washing does something. Washing removes what we like to say, one or two log worth of bacteria, so it does something. But I would argue that washing really just removes the snot that some three-year-old sneezed on it on the, you know, in the produce <laughs> section. Yeah. I mean, it's not very reassuring. So how can you, like, if you want to eat raw spinach, raw lettuce, you know, obviously, you know, salad greens, uh, any number of raw fruits or vegetables, how do you, um, you know, how do you sanitize them without putting some kind of scary chemical on them? It's very difficult. And that's why we say food safety has to begin on the farm and you have to lower those numbers all the way through. Mm Mm-hmm. I know that's not reassuring. I have a not bunch of baby spinach in the fridge right now, and it's very sandy, I know. Um, and for that stuff, I saute it. Yeah, I guess that's the answer. Don't well, eat salad. You know, the triple wash stuff, people should not be rewashing the stuff that's in plastic bags. Even though there's been outbreaks, you have to measure that against the number of meals that are safely consumed to get a relative risk rating. Mm-hmm. Um, less, I don't know. I don't eat a lot of lettuce. I don't mind it. I like it, but eh, as a vegetable, it's overrated. Yeah, I mean, it's... I like like tomatoes and carrots and, Mm -hmm. you know, all sorts of things. And believe me, living in Brisbane, we have a vegetable symphony going on. It's spring here. We just had a huge strawberry season. Mm. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Are you going to be sad when you have to go home? And the people around here, the people around here are like, well, yeah, I really enjoy eating seasonally. And it's like, well, yeah, you have a climate like northern Florida. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you enjoy eating seasonally. seasonally. You don't live in New York or Canada. Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, Doug, we have to wrap it up, unfortunately. And I'm so sorry about all of the um, false starts here. But Jack managed to make it work for us. And thank you so much. I want you to promote the Barf blog, tell people where they can find it, and what else they should be, you know, staying aware of as consumers. The website is barfblog.com. Mm-hmm. It's called that because when people get foodborne illness, one of the symptoms is they barf. Yeah. It has. We try to tie pop culture into it because we know that people learn not through educational material. It's like, do those signs employees must wash hands actually work? <laughs> No. I'm thinking probably not. But telling stories does. And yeah. most people do want to make serve safe food. 
I mean, most people don't think about it. They think about the date they're going on while they're making your sandwich for lunch. Well, yeah, that's true. But I, I think that there are, I mean, I think in, in most restaurants, actually, they're pretty, well, at least good ones. <laughs> they're pretty I don't know. I used to say that making your customers sick was a bad business strategy, but a lot of people still keep to employing it. <laughs> Sad but true, man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's free. You can subscribe. We've had some web problems recently, but we're getting those rectified. I mean, we're a, we're a small outfit. We're yeah. me, a guy who used to do his PhD with me, and a couple students, and that's it. And well, we're doing these you publish an unbelievable amount of often fascinating material. I mean, I never fail to just scan through and see what stories I want to read. I mean, I may not read it every day, word for word, but um, I definitely pick up a lot of information from it. And um, and it's great, as I said, to have that global perspective because we do have an international food supply. So, Doug, I want to thank you again for getting up in the middle of the night um, to join my audience on Heritage Radio Network and uh, give us the benefit of your wisdom and your information. And uh, hopefully we can do this again when you come back to Kansas. In the meantime, folks, I hope you'll come back and join me next week. Uh, we will be talking with Gene Halloran from Consumers Union, the outfit that publishes Consumer Reports. We're going to be talking, we're going to be following up on the um, very interesting uh, um, uh, petition that they circulated earlier this year. Um, she came on and, ta- and spoke with me, I think, in June. You may remember we were talking about getting drugs out of meat getting antibiotics out of the meat supply and um, and she has a very interesting follow-up story to tell us and we might do a little bit of chit-chatting about um, GMOs as well but uh, do come back for that Gene Halloran from Consumers Union this has been your host Katie Kiever on Straight No Chaser and my thanks to our sponsor Kane Winery and my thanks very much to Jack Inslee who engineered today and who had lots and lots of um, technical problems which he solved admirably so long folks see you next week listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.